Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Hannah Abrams, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Tony Brew and Avi Cooper. Hey, guys. Hannah. Good evening. Hello, hello. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So today we are going to be discussing bilirubin. In particular, why patients with acute liver injury or chronic liver dysfunction have conjugated hyperbilirubinemia. So, Tony, you like to talk about paradoxes. What's the paradox here? Why did you think about this? So if we begin with the hepatocyte and we recognize that the hepatocyte is a thing that's doing the conjugation, then the question becomes, why doesn't this quote-unquote liver function decrease in the setting of severe inflammation or severe fibrosis like bad cirrhosis? But I can understand seeing a dramatic elevation in unconjugated bilirubin in these sorts of situations, right? Because the liver can't conjugate, so what we see is a lot of unconjugated bilirubin. But what we see in these conditions, really bad acute liver injury, acute liver failure, chronic cirrhosis, is conjugated bilirubin. And so that just, it confused me. I I just couldn't quite understand why that specific function, the ability to conjugate, didn't go away as the liver got sicker and sicker and sicker. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We call it a liver function test. Right. It's sort of like, well, it's sort of like Passover, right? Like the four questions, like why this function as opposed to all the others? (laughs) Exactly. What's what's special about that specific liver function test? So we definitely trust you on that one, but can you give us a little information on what typically is the ratio of conjugated and unconjugated bilirubin in acute and chronic liver disease? Yeah, I think it's a good place to start. So once I reported that the normal fraction of measured bilirubin that is conjugated is about 3%, right? So someone at normal steady state, most of the bilirubin is actually unconjugated, and only a small fraction is conjugated 3%. In chronic alcohol-related cirrhosis, it rises to 20%. And in chronic viral hepatitis, it's 64%. So again, in chronic liver diseases, where there's less working hepatocytes in theory, the amount of conjugated bilirubin rises in comparison to unconjugated. And even as the liver fails, its ability to conjugate remains intact. So there was another study that examined patients with liver failure from hepatitis B. And even in this setting, the average conjugated bilirubin was around 10 milligrams per deciliter, which is significantly higher than the normal level of less than one. So there's something about this, again, this ability to conjugate that's preserved. So I I feel like to you know, really understand this paradox and and solve it. Can we sort of back up and review bilirubin metabolism and what role the liver sort of plays in all that? Yeah, we should do that. And we'll probably end up talking a little bit about terminology because I, I think we're using terms already that some people may need a little bit of a refresher on. But first, let's start with the senescent red blood cell, right? It's at its end of its life and it's destroyed in the spleen. And when the hemoglobin is metabolized, that hemoidy is converted to bilirubin and shipped into the blood. So it hasn't yet been conjugated by the liver, right? It's just been in the spleen and now in the blood. And this form is called unconjugated bilirubin. Should be unsurprising. Some other things about it that many of us probably remember, it's insoluble in water. And so therefore, generally protein bound with albumin being the most important protein. Okay. And then this, this is where it goes to the liver. So that's exactly right. So the unconjugated bilirubin is taken up by the hepatocytes via facilitated and simple diffusion. It's then conjugated, which basically just means attached to something called glucuronic acid. And this is done by an enzyme, uridine diphosphate glycosyl transferase, specifically the 1A1 subtype. 
Ah, um, yes, and, of course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yes, of course. Uh, and so for, I think for the rest of the episode, we'll either refer to this as UGT or UGT1A1, with again, that 1A1 being the specific isoenzyme that does the bilirubin conjugation. And all of this is done in the endoplasmic reticulum, specifically of the hepatocyte, which is, again, why we refer to this as a liver function test. So if UGT1A1, that enzyme, is what conjugates bilirubin, right, takes it from unconjugated to conjugated bilirubin, is that the one that the enzyme that sort of doesn't work in Gilbert's, right? I mean, they're the that's the patient population that has unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia, right? That's exactly right. So patients with Gilbert's have this UGT1A1 that doesn't function fully. And something that I didn't know uh, because I've never done this, but you can actually treat these patients, these patients with Gilbert's, with phenobarbital. Because phenobarbital is a medication that actually upregulates the function of UGT1A1. I suspect neither of you have done this, but it's theoretically something that can be done. Not for this intended purpose. Have I given phenobarbital to people who may have Gilbert's and or alcohol-related hepatitis? Maybe. Yeah, it may have happened accidentally. But all right, so you know, going sort of zooming back into the hepatocyte, though, how does that newly conjugated bilirubin make its way? into the bile to be, you know, to be excreted. Yeah. So now we have an, a, a form of bilirubin that's now conjugated um, and now soluble, and it's transported into the bile via an AT, ATP-dependent channel called the multidrug resistance associated protein 2, or MRP2. And that conjugated bilirubin, now that it's excreted into the bile, can ultimately make its way into the bowel, into the stool, and is excreted from the body. All right. And so that's most of our background. One final question. What's the difference between conjugated, unconjugated, and direct, indirect in the terminology? Because we're going to be using mostly conjugated, unconjugated for the discussion tonight. And basically, I just described the difference between those two, right? The unconjugated is the insoluble form that's protein or albumin bound. The conjugated form is soluble and it's been conjugated by the liver. When we talk about direct and indirect, that is typically referencing what the lab does to test for different forms of bilirubin. And it's actually what's reported, right? They report that here is the direct bilirubin, and it's based on, again, the testing that they're doing on the lab. And similarly, here is the indirect bilirubin. And I would say for the purposes of our episode, it's not necessary to go into the details of that. But I think one thing is worth mentioning, and it's that conjugated and direct are not synonyms, nor are unconjugated and indirect. I have always assumed them to mean the same thing, but they don't. It is true that most of the direct bilirubin we see on a lab is in the conjugated form, but not all of it is. And the same is true for indirect. Not all of this is unconjugated. Again, this distinction isn't really necessary for the answer to the question we're discussing right now, but I kind of wanted the listeners to realize this because it's something that I didn't realize until I read up on the subject. Yeah, definitely not something I was aware of either. But I also think I'm sort of seeing the paradox now, right? Like, So conjugation occurs within the liver and we need working hepatocytes to get conjugated hyperbilirubinemia. But in the setting of liver injury or sort of you know chronic liver dysfunction, we find evidence of their, their hepatocytes aren't working well, they're damaged. And that manifests in things like coagulopathy, increased INR, decreased albumin production. But then these damaged, diseased livers continue to produce conjugated bilirubin. And it's like this one specific liver function is 
preserved. It is a paradox. I think that's really well put. So let's get to the answer. Like, What's going on to allow this to happen? So it turns out that in some liver diseases, there is actually upregulation of UGT enzymes in those remaining hepatocytes. And the levels of the specific isoform that we've been talking about that conjugates bilirubin, the UGT1A1, that at the very least remains stable as the degree of liver fibrosis progresses. And, and this is true even in the severest forms of fibrosis and cirrhosis. So couldn't levels just be caused by breakdown getting released from these damaged dying hepatocytes? That was one of my first assumptions in the same way that, oh, we're seeing a high ALT, not because there's necessarily upregulation of ALT in the damaged hepatocyte, but because it's a marker of the damage. But many of these studies actually see an increase in mRNA. And this strongly suggests that it's not just the levels being increased because they're being secreted from the hepatocytes, but the hepatocytes are actually working over time to make those enzymes. They're actually inducing more transcription. And there are other factors at play that are in some ways more disease-specific. So for example, one study found that alcohol itself upregulated UGT1A1 by 177%. And I've wondered, though I haven't found any data to support this, but I've wondered if this helps to explain the profound elevations in conjugated bilirubin we see in alcohol-related hepatitis. I've seen bilirubin, total bilirubin is over 40 and 50 with an enormous component of conjugated bilirubin. And curiously, bilirubin itself seems to upregulate UGT1A1. And so it kind of modulates its own metabolism. And this makes sense if we see bilirubin as potentially toxic to the liver. Yeah. And it, you know, it's interesting, Tony, do you think that, because clearly it seems like the liver has sort of evolved to preserve the capacity to conjugate bilirubin, sort of even when other functions of the liver are failing. Did you see any sort of teleological arguments for that when you're reading about this? No. I wish that I could find something, but I really couldn't. And there are so many different isoforms. It could be that there's a specific isoform whose upregulation is uh, beneficial to humans and to other organisms. Um, and it just so happens that there's upregulation of the isoform that also conjugates bilirubin. But I wasn't able to find a good explanation for why this would be potentially protective and potentially preserved, right? You'd think it would be good for a human to also continue to make clotting factors. Yeah, make albumin. <laughs> Maybe even more so than the bilirubin. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like itching is bad, but. And, you know, but I feel like, Tony, there's another paradox within the paradox here. Sorry not to sort of get. Uh, you know, take us too far down the rabbit hole. But if the ability to conjugate bilirubin remains intact, then why doesn't it just get released into the bile in the normal manner, right? Like, you know, is the newly conjugated bilirubin sort of released when the hepatocyte dies, right? I mean, you'd expect that like, why if it's getting made, why can't it just get excreted into the bile that's getting made anyway? Yeah. When I was originally researching this topic, I wasn't expecting this to be a question that I had to answer, but it, it dawned on me that the Exactly to your point. Why, just because we can continue to conjugate, that actually doesn't explain the hyperbilirubinemia. Let's just send it all, shuttle it all into the yeah, bile. Just send We're it done. down. <laughs> and it, you, just like the explanation for the elevated UGT1A1 levels isn't just exploded hepatocytes, that's also not the explanation here. It's not just that we have hepatocytes that have lots of conjugated bilirubin into them, and, and then when they die, they release the bilirubin. Instead, uh, although conjugation remains unaffected, the remaining steps that we talked about earlier, 
they are affected. So earlier I mentioned that this MRP2 transporter that takes the conjugated bilirubin and ships it into the bile. Well, it turns out that this transporter is down-regulated in liver disease. And this is sort of best described in primary biliary cirrhosis, but you see it in other conditions as well. So the conjugated bilirubin can't get out into the bile and just make the bile more bilious. How does it get into the blood in the other direction? Right, because what we have right now maybe is a form of cholestasis, right? We have bilirubin that's basically trapped within the hepatocyte. But this is actually a perfect example of why peer review of these tutorials when I've uh, when I've asked for it has been so helpful because I wasn't aware of, of this next part until one of my peer reviewers pointed it out to me. But it turns out that conjugated bilirubin is routinely secreted back into the sinusoidal blood by something called PR, MRP3, so not to be confused with MRP2. Similarly named- How could we confuse sim- those? Exactly. Similar transporter, but it's the third version. I, I hope there's a first version somewhere out there. So anyway, this is MRP3. It takes the conjugated bilirubin, it ships it out into the sinusoidal blood. And Almost all of it is reclaimed by the hepatocytes via organic anion-transporting polypeptides known as OAT-P. So there's a a lot of transporters in in this discussion, and hopefully people are keeping up. This process of secreting the conjugated bilirubin into the blood and then reclaiming it back into the hepatocyte, this is called bilirubin hopping. And why the heck the body would do this? Why the hell the the hepatocyte would be like, all right, let's ship it out only to just reclaim it back? It's not at all clear, but it happens for sure. Can I propose bilirubin hopping as a new dance move and exploding (laughs) hepatocytes as a new band name? Uh, I'm fairly certain I would not want to see what uh, a dance move called the bilirubin hop looks like. That does not... Maybe my daughter would actually do it really well. Her her favorite animal is a bunny. Let me go back to liver disease, though. I'm guessing that we're going to say you're going to say we, that we see alterations in MRP3 and OP function as well, right? Like that something is sort of going wrong with this bilirubin hop. That, that, that's exactly what we see, right? So alongside the the decrease in the usual portal of exit from the hepatocyte into the bile via MRP2, right? So that has decreased. So it's now stuck in the hepatocyte, we actually see an increase in MRP3. So more of it is shipped into the blood. And then we finally see also a decrease in OAT-P. So it cannot hop back into the hepatocyte. All right, so if you, you sort of put it all together, we've got a bilirubin molecule that is able to be conjugated because UGT1A1 is still running like mad. It can't go through its normal route through MRP2 into the bile, because that's decreased, but it can be shipped out into the blood because MRP3 is upregulated. And once it's there, it's stuck because it cannot hop back into the hepatocyte via OP. There's just like so many transporters and just the perfect marriages of up and down have led to us having hyperbilirubinemia. Hmm. There's got to be a teleology in there somewhere. I know, and I know. Avi's so angry that I don't have a reason. <laughs> well, you it's know, so some, coordinated, some t- like, like, yeah, like it's Hannah said, it's like a conspiracy <laughs> to keep yeah, I mean, I can understand from leaving the body. I can definitely understand the idea of not having it be cholestatic within the hepatocytes, right? That marriage of MRP2, MRP3, and, and OP, the way those have synchronized to, to send it into the blood, maybe. But why not send it into the bile? I, that, that I, I can't figure that one out. 
And why, to I the mean, earlier question, why is this specific enzymatic function so preserved? Like you have one hepatocyte left and it's like, you know what I'm going to do? My, my last dying breath, I am going to conjugate bilirubin, damn it. Well, I mean, how else would you be symptomatic of like early acute liver injury? Like how would you know something else was wrong? Maybe this is uh, that last hepatocyte, like sending out its red flag by making you yellow and itchy. Well, there are mushrooms that our ancestors probably ate that made them turn uh, 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 or made them have liver failure. So I don't know. Maybe. (laughs) I I don't have a good one, though. Uh, But this is so much fun. So, Tony, can I come back for a minute to a question that we deferred earlier in this episode, which is I always assumed that direct and indirect were sort of a parallel to conjugated and unconjugated bilirubin. Can you explain a little bit more what the difference between direct and indirect versus conjugated and unconjugated are? Yeah, I'll give a, um, one of the, I think, myriad reasons why they're not synonymous. And it has to do with a form of bilirubin called delta. Is that something that either of you guys have heard of? Yeah, so I'm, I'm not making not. it up. Yeah, it exists. <laughs> so basically, it's kind of a, a weird mix of conjugated and unconjugated because it is conjugated. It's, it is a con- form of conjugated bilirubin, but it is also albumin bound. And that's not typical for conjugated bilirubin. That makes it more like unconjugated bilirubin. And this, um, from what I understand, is actually sort of not measured in the same way as most forms of conjugated bilirubin. And so it interferes with the ability to have this one-to-one match of oh, conjugated bilirubin equals direct bilirubin. There are other reasons for the lack of those terms being synonymous, but this presence of something called delta bilirubin, which for those of you who are interested, there's a lot that can be said about it. It's kind of a fascinating topic all its own. Delta bilirubin is part of the reason. Amazing. All right. Well, that that's a pearl that I'm going to just like be dropping every day now on morning rounds. <laughs> yeah. A lot of surprises on this one. I mean, it's like, really? What? That's how it works? <laughs> Amazing. Tony, do you have any take-home points for us? I sure do. So uh, first, UGT1A1 uh, is an enzyme responsible for bilirubin conjugation. And amazingly enough, its function remains stable or in some cases even increases as the liver is inflamed or even becomes fibrotic. Second thing is that MRP2 is a transporter that takes conjugated bilirubin and ships it from the hepatocyte into the bile. And this channel is decreased in liver disease, limiting this excretion into the bile. And third, as an alternate form of exit, the conjugated bilirubin enters the sinusoidal blood. And ultimately, we see this as hyper, uh, as conjugated hyperbilirubinemia. All right. Wow. Well, that wraps up another episode of The Curious Clinicians. So thank you, as always, for joining us. As a reminder, you can join our mailing list at CuriousClinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. You can earn CME and MOC credits for physician and other healthcare professionals via VCU Health just for listening to this episode. For more information, visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash Curious Clinicians. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. So until next time... We've been the Curious Clinicians.